A federal judge has voided the mask mandate for airports, planes, and other forms of transit, though people will still be required to wear masks during armed robberies in cities run by Democrats in the hope the robbers won't spread disease while they're pillaging your store in the name of social justice and a great new flat-screen TV. The question put before Florida U.S. District Judge Catherine Mizell was, is it constitutional for a cabal of unelected bureaucrats led by a preening upward failure of a Faucian buffoon who may or may not be the felonious android spy played by Ian Holm in the first Alien movie to impose random orders on a free people in the name of an imaginary power called the science, which is not to be confused with science, which has repeatedly shown that unelected Faucian buffoon cabals haven't the first foggy fiddling idea what the hell they're talking about. The judge's answer to that question read in its entirety, quote, ha, 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 unquote. Though 98.7% of Americans greeted the judge's ruling by dancing around in a gigantic nationwide circle and singing Hava Nagila while kissing random strangers and entering into ill-considered marriages out of an overflow of sexual energy inspired by a hallucinatory ecstasy of joy, CDC chief, Oz, the great and terrible, called on the DOJ to appeal the decision. Speaking in the form of a holographic, gigantic green head while hiding her shabby and miserable self behind a curtain, Oz said, quote, This decision must be overturned because if Americans stop being afraid of the virus, they might stop being afraid of climate change. And if they stop being afraid of climate change, they might stop being afraid of systemic racism. And if they stop being afraid of systemic racism, they might stop being afraid of one another and band together to tar and feather us and throw us into the Potomac where we so obviously belong, unquote. The largest pro-mask activist organization, Please Force Me to Cover My Horrible Face, or PFMCMHF, is composed mostly of Democrats plus Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th slasher films. Voorhees says he supports the mask mandates because his mask is the beloved trademark of a profitable movie franchise, whereas Democrats say they support the mandates because they're eerie psychopaths who love to terrorize people and just won't die no matter how many times you manage to end their reign of terror. Anthony Fauci, the head of the, Na of the National Institute for Oh, Why Don't You Go Away and Shut the Hell Up, You Corrupt Bureaucrat Loser, or NIOWDY. G-A-S-H-U-C-B-L, gave his reaction to the judge's ruling on the CNN Plus show, Rest in Peace, starring Brian Stelter's reputation. <laughs> Speaking in an incredibly irritating, high-pitched, gravelly voice, Fauci said, quote, people must wear masks or not wear masks because they help or don't help and will appeal the decision or not, depending on the science or just some random crap that occurs to me as I lie awake at night trying to think of stupid things to say on TV in my irritating voice, unquote. Fauci then spun around in circles, spewing white fluid out of his mouth until his head fell off and he collapsed on the floor, revealing he actually was the felonious android from the first Alien movie who was ordered to bring a dangerous life form to Earth where it could be weaponized against humanity. Either that or he was just taking payoffs from the Chinese to do basically the same thing. In a private conversation with the Easter Bunny, President and venal houseplant Joe Biden reacted to the decision by saying, quote, I support the mandate. I don't see why men shouldn't date each other if they're the sort of guys who used to hang around the bathhouse at the pool where I was a lifeguard before I killed Corn Pop in a duel and was appointed sheriff of Dodge City in the movie High Noon, Oh Look, a Bird Crapped on Me, unquote. 
trigger warning, <laughs> Andrew Clavin. And this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. All right. I had to rewrite the joke about CNN Plus because it died while I was preparing the monologue. And if you would like to subscribe, what is it? Dailywire.com slash subscribe. You can use the code RIPCNN Plus using the plus symbol RIPCNN Plus. Uh, and you'll get how much do they get off, Danny? 20% off. For just for just saying a, a respectful farewell uh, to CNN Plus, who could ever have guessed uh, when they make you pay for something you didn't want for free <laughs> that it would go out of business? And, but it, far be it from me to drink the leftist tears. <clears throat> ah, but they just taste so good. All right, the vast right wing conspiracy known as Clavenon continues. A lot of leftist tears today, and we're going to be drinking them all as we talk about Twitter and Elon Musk and Hollywood and Johnny Depp and Washington and Hunter Biden. Plus, the wonderful Megan Basham has a great report on how the left weaponizes big business. And I have to say, I know I promised uh, with Easter, I said I would stop plugging my book, uh, The Truth and Beauty. I will stop plugging it, but I have to tell you this. Uh, I told you when I started plugging it that if you guys could put this book on an actual bestseller list, it would they'd have to rewrite uh, the Bible uh, to add an extra miracle. Well, uh, I was joking about the Bible, but they did get on the USA Today bestseller list, which is the most honest bestseller list out there because they just count how many books are selling in, in any category and put it on. And it did make the USA Today bestseller list uh, a book about Jesus Christ and the uh, English romantic poets. Uh, that is down, of course, to God first, but working through you. And I cannot tell you, even though I was joking about the Bible, I cannot tell you how seriously I appreciate your support and the reactions to the book, which have just been absolutely fabulous. It is, it's a, a very gratifying thing because I wrote this book without telling anybody about it. Uh, you know, there was no chance of my selling it. I believed there was one, I still believe, there was one editor in the country who would even think about publishing it. Uh, he did publish it. He gave me a, a fine advance for it, but he basically let me know he didn't expect to sell any copies, uh, but he was doing it because he thought the book was so good and unique. And uh, the fact that it has done so well has been immensely gratifying, and I owe it to you, and I, I'm really appreciative. I really am. So that's all I'll say. Uh, if that should happen to cause you to go out and buy a second copy for your mom, uh, don't let it stop you. Also, while you're doing that, you want to subscribe uh, to... <laughs> you want to subscribe to the podcast, an Apple podcast, give us a five-star review. That helps us out a lot, too. Go on YouTube, subscribe to my personal Andrew Claven account, and you will get exclusive content, including uh, the Elden Ring, me playing Elden Ring. Somebody, I read the comments on that. Somebody said he looks like he's never played a video game before. I was playing gamers when, before you were a gleam in your father. By golly, I was, I played video games when we had to play them without the video. Uh, <laughs> I've been playing video games forever, and I, it's just that the guys were in my ear, and they were telling me to go places where they knew I'd get killed because they thought that was funny. <laughs> None of them is here anymore, of course. Uh, but if you <laughs> press the bell on the YouTube thing, I don't know what happens. Uh, but if it blows up and, you know, your entire neighborhood disappears, uh, you'll probably have deserved it. Also, leave a comment, and if your comment is sufficiently 
cruel and uh, marginalizes, uh, you know, any number of oppressed groups. Uh, we'll read it on the show because that's just what we're looking for. <laughs> this one is from Brandon Gage. This is a serious one. He says, I have to speak up for us Mormons, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are generally conservative, but some, like Spencer Cox, have unfortunately become part of the cult of niceness uh, that Jeremy discussed. Please don't mistake all church members as progressive liberals. Our church was founded on traditional conservative values. Uh, yes. First of all, let me tell you what I meant to say, and then I'm not sure whether what I meant to say was right either. What I was trying to say, you know, it's backstage, we're not researching things, we're just kind of talking off the top of our heads. What I meant to say was just by my own observation, the, the, the Mormon church, the LDS church, seems very much to me like Episcopalians used to be, whereas the membership of Episcopalians was known as the Republican Party at prayer, it was always very conservative, but the priests and the leadership were always incredibly radical. And now the Episcopalian church is virtually gone. I mean, there are fewer Episcopalians than Jews in this country, and there are no Jews in the country. I mean, it's a very small number. Uh, and so that's the way the LDS church looked to me. It looked to me like the leadership has gone left, uh, even though the people I know, and I know many Mormons, uh, have remained right. If I'm wrong about that, I would be delighted. But that is what I, I wasn't trying to say, that all uh, LDS people are left. That would be ridiculous. I know they're not. Uh, but I did mean the leadership seems to have gone left. If I'm wrong about that, I would be delighted. I know we're all hearing a lot about cryptocurrency. It's one of the most exciting investment opportunities to come around for some time. But it can be confusing. You wonder, what about taxes? Well, with an Alto Crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and avoid or defer the taxes. Get into investing in crypto and do it in a tax-advantaged retirement account Alto's Crypto IRA is the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. Trade all you want without the tax headache, create an account in just a few minutes, and invest with as little as 10 bucks with no setup charges. Get secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. There are 150-plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Cardano. Plus, there are multiple ways to fund your account. You can make a cash contribution or transfer cash from an existing IRA or roll over an old 401k. Open Alto crypto IRA account with as little as 10 bucks. Just go to altoira.com slash Andrew. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com slash Andrew. Start investing in cryptocurrency today. Go to altoira.com slash Andrew. What else can we talk about? It's always uh, important, I think, before we get into the nitty gritty of the news uh, to discuss the, the broader philosophical issues. Uh, so let's begin with America's uh, philosopher in chief, uh, Chuckles the Clown. He's cut four. Space is exciting. <laughs> it spurs our imaginations and it forces us to ask big questions. Space, it affects us all. And it connects us all. That is deep. I mean, before she talked about time, now she's talking about space. Uh, it's the, like the space-time continuum of stupidity. But, you know, it actually, it actually comes clear when it is explained to us by the explainer in chief. Here's uh, cut nine. Pakistan should not, and Afghanistan should be people. All these He's explaining the uh, Afghanistan debacle and the Easter Bunny comes and saves him by 
chasing him away. But what he was really, he was really thinking about time. So one more, th- I, I know I should start the show because I know Danny, I tell Danny how long the segments are going to be and then I never stick to the time, <laughs> ruining everything. But I have to, there's one more thing I have to play. I have to tell you the story. When I first moved to New York as a kid, right out of college, I, I lived in a building that where the super was a pornographer. He lived down in the basement and he would make pornography and he was just a horrible, horrible person. He was always trying to cheat me out of something or deny something that the law said I could have. And one day I went down, I think his name was Larry, and I said to him, I said to him Larry, you got to do this for me. And he said, no, I'm not going to. And he was just a character out of Dickens. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I said, you know, Larry, it's it's the law. You have to do it. It's not legal not to do it. And he said, no legal, no legal. When they... <laughs> Overturned when they overturned the uh, mask mandate, which is clearly unconstitutional. The CDC has no right to go telling people to put masks on their faces, these little burkas on their faces. This is uh, Fauci's response to this. this is cut 16. I was both surprised and disappointed because those types of things really are the purview of the CDC. This is a public health issue. And for a court to come in, and if you look at the, the rationale for that, it really is not particularly firm. <laughs> And we are concerned about that, about courts getting involved in things that are unequivocally public health decisions. I mean, this is a CDC issue. It should not, should not have been a court issue. No legal, no legal. It's <laughs> like talking to my pornographer landlord. No legal. They can't make, I can't make me. I, there's no legal. Anyway, I sometimes get cranky. I may just, I just may riff for the rest of the show. I sometimes get cranky about uh, comic book superhero movies you told, you've heard me say a number of times. It's not that I don't like them. It's not that I don't enjoy a good superhero movie. Uh, it's that there are just too many of them. And I also get concerned that men above a certain age, like 12, uh, get so wrapped up in the universe of this, uh, you know, of these superheroes and what's going on and what's happening, especially now, uh, you know, that there's the metaverse and none none of these stories have any consequences. People can die and come back and, you know, fall in love and get married and go away and have children, then they don't. And so they don't mean anything either. But so, so it always kind of used to bother me when I would come to work here, for instance, and I would see like 30, 40 year old men arguing in the hallway about whether Spider-Man was really dead. Now, when I was a kid, I loved comic books. I had a huge stack. What to me was a huge stack of comic books. Uh, I wish I'd saved them because uh, they were probably worth a million dollars today. I would read and reread them. They were great classic stories like The Death of Superman, which was an I always loved The Death of Superman was an imaginary story. And even as a little kid, I thought, what are, what are the rest of the stories? But when I got to be about 12, you know, I stopped reading comic books because I discovered girls and I set aside childish things in order to chase skirts like some sort of drooling rabbit animal instead because that's what growing up is all about. So it, it really does worry me when when guys get, you know, I feel like if guys watch this too much, they we may have a population crash. Uh, but I've always believed that where young men go, there is the future. That even if it's bad, if young men sit at home and twiddle their thumbs, then the future is going to be bad. If they start building things and go out and doing things and having kids and building families, then the future will be all right. So I've theorized that what these uh, movies are actually about is they're about the coming age of transhumanism when you start to put wet discs in your head uh, and you become a superhero. When you have you know superpowers, your intellect is bigger, uh, maybe your strength will be bigger speed, all those things. And maybe people are sort of preparing themselves mentally for what that's going to be about. But there's still something about the superhero genre that bothers me. And this is even when I was a kid. Even when I was a kid, I used to get annoyed at the fact. So I'm like, I'm 11 years old, 10, 11 years old. I would get annoyed at the fact that every comic book story 
ended with two superpowered individuals getting into an enormous fight in the skies, either above Metropolis or above the Earth, right? It's just two people just, and every page would be like, pow, and crash, and crash. And that was every story. Every story would be resolved by these two gigantic figures just beating the living crap out of each other, and that would be the end of the story. And even as a kid, I was enough of a writer to think to myself, you know, you can't solve every problem like the big fist fight. I mean, even when I would play with soldiers in the sandbox, I would make up like cleverer uh, endings in that. Not everything ended with a fight. In real life, you know, you see little guys who outsmart big guys, and they do clever strategies that kind of get them around them, or they use the law. Uh, Women uh, who have no apparent power outside of their own home still can use the moral authority they have as wives and mothers to affect outcomes, and that's a a way that a story can take a twist and have an ending. Uh, An itinerant preacher from nowhere uh, comes up before the head of an empire uh, and is put to death and still wins the fight and destroys the empire. All kinds of crazy things happen in the world. The left is always trying to say that we have this intersectional chart, so we know who has power and who doesn't have power. But the fact is there are a million different kinds of power, and everybody has a little power over everybody else, and that's what makes kind of life interesting and the fabric of life interesting. Uh, And you just don't have uh, every story ending with two people fighting it out. And what I worry about when I see this is that it indicates that people are waiting for big people, superheroes, billionaires, politicians, uh, corporations, power bases to solve our problems instead of solving the problem themselves. And I think this happens to people when they get fearful or when they uh, despair or when they feel helpless. They look to superheroes to solve their problems. They say that, you know, we can only do this, oh, if we, we can't do this without Elon Musk. We can't do this without Donald. Only Trump can fix it. Or, you know, remember Trump said, only I can fix it. And you think like, well, I know, you know, <laughs> I don't think the president is going to fix everything for us. I don't think a billionaire is going to fix everything for us. Of course, we see it on the left. Uh, the left has constantly trying to make you feel small, make you feel helpless, make you feel terrified in order that you will turn to the superhero of the government. The government is going to fly down and... Uh, and save everything. And traditionally, before Donald Trump, it was the left that was always idolizing their really kind of corrupt and horrifying little people. You know, Barack Obama. I mean, this guy's a kind of trashy little guy. You know, he's a mediocrity. Uh, You know, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And he's just an egotist and all this. But he was the light bringer. He was a savior. He was the best. That's traditional on the left. The left is always, and the left is always trying to make us feel that they're fighting for the little guy. They're fighting for the little guy, but really they're accruing power to the big guy. I was watching Jen Psaki. She was talking about um, this thing in, uh, uh, mostly in Florida, where they're telling uh, teachers to, to leave, stop grooming children uh, for a world of sexuality. All these teachers coming in saying, you know, I, I can't tell people about my homosexual relationship, you know, and I, I, now I have to teach them math. What am I to do? I, I heard people complaining about the fact that they banned uh, a math book because it had uh, critical race theory problems and uh, sexualized problems. I, people were saying, that's terrible. They're banning a book. It's not terrible. I read the content of that thing. There's no way schools, no way the state should be paying to put those things in our schools. It is just garbage. It's like, you know, Timmy's mother gets has a job as a prostitute. You know, it really was stuff like that. It was unbelievable stuff. But Jen Psaki and all the left uh, wants to make us feel that really they're standing up for the little guy, the little, the poor gay man, the poor gay child. That's, that's the little guy in the situation. Uh, and here she is uh, shedding some leftist tears.
the political games and harsh and cruel uh, attempts at laws or laws that we're seeing in some states like Florida, that is not a reflection of the country moving to oppose LGBTQ plus communities. That is not what we see in data. That is not factual. Uh, and that is not where things stand. This is a political wedge issue and an attempt to win a culture war. And they're doing that in a way that is harsh and cruel uh, to a community of kids, especially. I'm, I'm like going to get, emo- uh, I'm going to get emotional about this issue because I just, it's horrible. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's like kids who are bullied and they, 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 like all these leaders are, are taking steps to hurt them and hurt their lives and hurt their families. And you look at some of these laws in these states and it is going after parents who are in loving relationships who have kids. It's completely outrageous, um, but it is, it is a wedge issue. Sorry, I, I'm just, this is an issue that makes me completely crazy, um, but it is an issue that um, is a political wedge issue. It is not a reflection of where the country is. Ah, boy, they, they do taste good, those leftist tears. Mm, boy, you know, this is not, see, they're pretending that they're standing up for the little guy, but the way you stand up for the little guy is by getting out of his way, and I really do think that what they are doing is keeping these teachers who have all the power in the classroom away from these kids, these groomer teachers, and they are groomer teachers. They're not grooming these kids for themselves. They're grooming them for a society in which these children will be sexualized. These kids don't give a rat's kazoo about this. They're, trying, they're there to learn and socialize with each other, leave them alone, you know, but they're, they're pretending, they're always pretending they're standing up for the little guy, but really it's always that big, powerful Superman that they want to tell you is going to solve all your problems, is going to protect you. And and the little guy here is the family. The family is standing up for their rights against the government. That is what's happening. I feel this way, by the way, about uh, DeSantis. Uh, the The Florida legislature just passed a bill stripping Disneyland of its uh, kind of Vatican, Disney World, sorry, of his Vatican-like rights. It has his own government, it has his own zoning, it has his own fire department, and they've, they passed a bill to strip them of, of their rights. And there's some on the right uh, who are saying, you know, this is bad because they're retaliating against Disney World's speech for attacking this this uh, groomer bill, this anti-groomer bill. Uh, I'm, I'm a little torn. I, I, I respect People on the right who are trying to defend free speech, I respect the fact that they're thinking about don't mess up free speech for them because they can mess it up for us. I I respect that. But in this case, they had a special government carve-out that was given to them because they were Disney and we trusted Disney. And once you saw those Chris Rufo tapes of them telling us that they're grooming our kids through their movies, no, I don't trust them anymore and they should be stripped of that special distinction. I don't, it doesn't bother me really at all. I don't want us to fight so dirty that we become the left. I want us to fight just dirty enough where we can defeat the left uh, without becoming them. Um, but but on the right too, okay? So the left is always turning to government, always making you feel like you're the little guy. Oh, you're so small, you're so helpless, you're so weak, you poor little black man, you can't take care of yourself. Oh, you know, it's terrible, the police are out there killing you, we'll protect you. The right has its own fears because of the natural pessimism of the right. And I talk about this all the time. We're always saying, oh, the country's done. Oh, the country, oh, you pull that string, the whole suit falls apart. Everything's falling apart. You know, it's just terrible. It's not, the last election was stolen. There's no point in even voting. I'm not even going to vote. Why would I vote? No, and now I've lost and see the country's lost because nobody voted. You know, I mean, that's, that is natural to conservatives. It's one of the reasons they're conservatives. They want to conserve what's there, what's good about our lives, what's wonderful about this country. And they're afraid that every little change will uh, make the country fall apart, which isn't true because a country, a society is an organism. It's a living thing. It can grow and it can change in keeping with its nature and keeping with its traditions. 
And so when people start to despair on the right, they start to look to these strong, strong men. You start to get that uh, European right wing that starts to say, oh, this says like, oh, Putin, great guy, great guy, standing up for Christianity. Oh, it's old, old Putin. When he bombs a maternity hospital in a Christian country, that's what Jesus would, you know, that missile had Jesus written all over it. You know, and, and, and even like, uh, you know, the, the Catholic integralists saying we need to bring the Vatican back. You know, that, no, that's not what this country is about. And Elon Musk is another one. I'll talk about Musk in a minute. But like, you know, Elon Musk is going to fix it. Donald Trump can fix it. You know, this country wasn't built by guys like Elon Musk. It was built guy, by guys who became Elon Musk while building the country. They started out as nobody and they built the country in their garage and that's how they became rich and famous. And I believe in that American. I think that that's the thing that really troubles me when I watch these superhero movies, when everything is decided by m people more powerful than the norm, women who aren't really women because they have super strength and can't be, t you know, don't need any protections. Uh, you know, all of that stuff. I think like, you know, I, that's not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for, the other day I was at a party, a party of evil right-wingers, and I, I was invited because I look like Lex Luthor, so they assumed that I must be an evil right-winger, uh, which I also am. And I was talking to this lovely, absolutely wonderful lady who runs a school, and it's one of these new classical education schools that are kind of coming out, I think, a lot with a lot of support from Hillsdale and other places where they teach the kids Latin, they teach them uh, uh, Western values and Western art. They have them reading very young. They teach them uh, Jesus Christ. They teach them religion. Uh, and she was just uh, just an absolutely charming lady talking to me at this party. And I was watching her and she just, she just had this missional flame. You know, she was on a mission and she was so full of excitement and eagerness about what she was doing. And she, you know, the words tumbling out of her mouth as she described these children. And I thought she, maybe there are 200 children in the school. It doesn't even go all the way through uh, 12th grade. They're just building it up and she's already uh, built it a lot. Uh, but that's what, that's where the country is going to be saved. And it is going to be saved. And it's going to be saved by ladies like that and people like that, individuals who build their families, who stick to the things that they believe in in their homes, right? That's what we have to do. You know, we have to actually live out the things we're talking about. All those conservatives who complain, oh, there's no morality anymore. I want to know, what has the morality in their house? All of them who complain that nobody has any courage, do they speak up when they're threatened with being silenced or being kicked off Twitter or being uh, penalized in their jobs? I want to know if people are, um, you know, standing up to their government, organizing, the, the parents who come into school boards, those are the people who are going to turn this country around. That's the, that is the place where this country was built, was built from the ground up, and that's the place where it will be rebuilt. I mean, when I saw that lady with that missional, uh, you know, flame in her, I thought, give me about a hundred flames like that, a thousand flames like that, 10,000 flames like that. I'll set this country on fire. I will burn the left to the ground. Now that we have performed the miracle of putting my book, The Truth and Beauty, on the bestseller list at USA Today, we know that marketing is important for small businesses like me. Constant Contact is a digital marketing platform that helps small businesses and nonprofits of all sizes build, grow, and succeed. With email marketing, contact management, industry-leading list growth tools, social media ads, and more. Constant Contact helps small businesses connect with customers, find new ones, and sell online, all from one easy-to-use platform. They've been trusted by millions of businesses to help improve their marketing with a 97% deliverability rate. You can rest assured that your customers and potential customers are getting the right message at the right time. With a simple interface, Constant Contact's easy-to-use platform makes contact management easier than ever. Their list growth tools help you find a bigger 
audience fast. Lead generation landing pages, text to join, and social media ads are proven to grow your list and drive engagement with your brand. With thousands of integrations, you can sync constant contacts tools with the tools you're already using. To start your free digital marketing trial today, visit ConstantContact.com. That's ConstantContact.com. So I was thinking of this whole idea of like the big man, the Superman coming to save us when I was watching this story unfold with Elon Musk and Twitter. And I don't want anything I say to be taken as an attack on Musk. That's not at all what I'm saying. I admire him a lot. I think he's a really interesting character, really interesting thoughts. Some of the things that he says, talks about are actually, uh, you know, he comes at things in, in this sideways way that I really like. It really illuminates uh, the problems in the world and the way the world is going. Uh, so he, he sneaks up on Twitter. Uh, hilarious. He he buys, I think, 9% of the shares, which makes him the, the major stockholder. Uh, to keep him away from their plan to, to silence everybody they disagree with, which is what they've been doing. I mean, they just continually cut down anything that smacks of conservatism. Uh, you know, he, he refuses. They try to put him on the board where they can control him and keep him quiet. And he says, no, I, you know what? I'm not going to go on the board. I'm going to buy that place. Uh, now, they panic. Twitter panics. And they're doing everything they can to stop uh, Elon Musk from buying Twitter. And it's hilarious. You know, they've got these all these kind of, you know, business things that are actually boring, but they give them fun names so they sound like they're more exciting. Like a, they put a poison pill in there. And so it's, all, it's all just money. They're just trying. It's not that interesting. They're trying to keep Musk from buying it out. And Musk has got the money. He's got like $46.5 in funding to purchase Twitter, which I think will be a large improvement on the shareholder stock. So in other words, shareholders will have a lot of reason uh, to, to sell their stock to Elon Musk if he's buying it up for that kind of money. And they're terrified because they have gone on this mission of shutting down conservative speech. And they keep pretending that's not happening. They don't even really pretend it anymore. It's been exposed by Project Veritas. We know they're doing it. Uh, Dan Gaynor from our wonderful uh, friends at Media Research Center, uh, he was on Tucker. He was talking about this. Here's Dan. Well, what we found is, the, obviously, one of the big categories was the Hunter Biden story. You know, uh, you're talking about major players being censored. Uh, the, obviously, the President Trump, Don Trump Jr., Kevin McCarthy, Ted Cruz. You go down the line, major publications. And that wasn't even the only category. We found more than 230 examples of people being censored for creepy Joe Biden stories. Uh, you know, the, that's the shows how far big tech will go to protect their president. I mean, if you cut out everybody who thinks Joe Biden is creepy, Twitter would just go silent. But, but here's the thing. Twitter, has, whatever commitment to free speech Twitter might have once had, uh, it's gone. I think, you know, that uh, Jack Dorsey, I used to make fun of him as Jack Boots Dorsey. Uh, but I think that he was caught between his own kind of libertarian instincts, kind of grand uh, cosmic libertarian instincts, uh, the pressure he was under from D.C. Democrats, and I think a bit of Trump derangement syndrome. He actually thought Trump was like a monster. Uh, but, you know, I think that what, what Dorsey would have ultimately done was he wanted to release the algorithm to the world. He wanted to set the algorithm free so that anybody with any kind of, um, you know, uh, computer knowledge 
could basically create their own Twitter. You could create a Twitter where there were no conservatives, no leftists, whatever you wanted, instead of letting just these kind of overlords do it. But he left and he was replaced by Parag Agrawal, who is just a fascist. I mean, he's not, I shouldn't call him a fascist. He's probably a leftist. He's not a fascist. There are all kinds of bad authoritarian people. And whatever he is, he's one of them. This is, this is what Agrawal said. He said, uh, our role is not to be bound by the First Amendment, but our role is to serve a healthy public conversation, and our moves are reflective of things that we believe lead to a healthier public conversation. The kinds of things that we do about this is focus less on thinking about free speech, but thinking about how the times have changed. He had it. So in other words, they are going to make sure that everybody who speaks is in line with how the times have changed, which is how they say they've changed, and you can only say they've changed the way they say because they say they've changed and they're the ones who control what you say, right? So it's all about the, these guys. Are, it's not going to be a conversation between you and me. It's not going to be a conversation between you and your 200,000 friends or whatever. It's going to be a conversation controlled by big tech because they know, they know what we're supposed to be talking about. This is authoritarian end of this kind of postmodern idea that speech is a weapon and it's only speech is a construct of power and all differences between us are just constructs of power and truth itself is a construct of power, and they're going to be in control of the truth because they don't want anybody with power. This is, this is the thing. This is the wild thing about this. They think, well, we don't want anybody with power exercising power like white men or anything like that, so we're going to do it, right? And you get this hilarious... Uh, First of all, they've shut down actual truth-telling. So, I mean, men and women are different. Uh, you can't change your gender. Uh, China is likely responsible for the Chinese virus. Hunter Biden looks corrupt and may have involved Joe Biden in his corruption. Climate change is not an existential emergency. Vaccines are not as effective as we hoped they would be. Uh, all of these things are true. These are literal truths, and you can't say them on Twitter. You can get uh, penalized on Twitter because there's no such thing as truth. It's just power. power. They're just power structures. And it, what is amazing to me about this is... They think Elon Musk is a danger because he's a billionaire. And who starts attacking them, right? Who starts attacking them? All the p most powerful people in the country. Max Boot of Trump derangement syndrome fatality. Uh, he tweeted, I am frightened by the impact on society and politics. If Elon Musk acquires Twitter, he seems to believe that on social media, anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. This is where this theory always leads. Uh, you know, we need less free speech if we're going to have free speech. I, I always love it when they say, if Donald Trump wins another term, it'll be the end of democracy. You think, wait, that actually is democracy if he wins another term. So democracy is, destroys democracy, free speech destroys free speech, because speech is power and truth is power. It's all this kind of power idea. But Max Boot is writing in the Washington Post, which uh, is owned by Jeff Bezos, one of the richest people in the country, only a little less rich, I think, than Elon Musk. All of these people, I mean, this this was all across all across the, uh, the mediaverse, uh, you know, a journalist at the, the Atlantic. The Atlantic was attacking Musk for this, and the Atlantic is owned by the billionaire widow of Steve Jobs, Time Magazine, uh, which is owned by Mark Bainoff of Salesforce, also a billionaire. All of these billionaires, because they see themselves, they constantly reconstruct themselves as victims. And you saw this in another attack on, on a, an actual victim in the Washington Post, this woman, Taylor Lorenz, who is really a study in leftist self-deceit, uh, she decides that she, it's so terrible. Whenever she tells the truth, whenever she speaks, people attack her online, and she starts crying about it. Let's cut one.
You feel like any little piece of information that gets out on you will be used by the worst people on the internet to destroy your life. And it's so isolating. And terrifying. It's horrifying. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's overwhelming. It's really hard. They're great. They just get better every time, those leftist tears. They just get tastier and tastier. It's like wine. You know, the older they get, they just get really... So she's the victim. She's working for Jeff Bezos, Washington Post. And what is she writing about? She says, any little piece of information I put out there. The piece of information she then puts out there is an attack on libs of TikTok, one of our favorite sites uh, on Twitter. She writes an article. Same woman, the woman you just saw crying for herself. She says, meet the woman behind libs of TikTok. This is the headline. Secretly fueling the rights outrage machine. <laughs> so she's on Twitter. She's on Twitter, and she's secretly fueling. The, I don't under, even know what that means. I can't even. You can't even make a joke about that. Is secretly fueling the rights outrage machine in public. She's secretly doing it in public. And then, then the uh, subhead goes on. A popular Twitter account has morphed into a social media phenomenon, spreading anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment and shaping. Public discourse. You don't want independent people shaping. Only Jeff Bezos gets to shape public discourse, my friends. Now, just just think about this for a minute. Libs of, let me read a little bit. Libs of TikTok reposts a steady stream of TikTok videos and social media posts, primarily from LGBTQ plus people, often including incendiary framing designed to generate outrage. Okay, so in other words, she's spurring hatred against LGBTQ people by posting videos of LGBTQ people putting forward their LGBTQ philosophy. That's what she's doing. She is telling not just the truth, not just the truth as she sees it. She is posting the video of the truth. Here is just an example. We love these people, so we're going to play the uh, uh, L- the libs of TikTok video. Here's just an example. Here is Madison Cawthorn's definition of a woman. X chromosomes, no tallywhacker. And this gives me a chance to talk about biological essentialism. (laughs) Um, First of all, it's not true. People have all kinds of chromosomes and all kinds of bodies. Women who've had hysterectomies, people born with certain conditions, but that's almost immaterial. Number two, it is a system of oppression. Gender is a hierarchy and a system of oppression. And the easier it is to define gender, the easier it is to keep the oppression going. It's dangerous. So, if you can't, if you're not watching this, I mean, the guy's in a dress with a beard. He's like, that looks like a comedy routine. Um, You know, I I just want to point out that what this guy is saying is not uh, out there. This is a typical theory of most liberal college professors, this is this postmodern, post-postmodern uh, social justice theory that all truth constructs, all uh, ideas of the way society works, all universal truths, all language itself is, uh, is a construct of power. So the idea that men and women are different and they are defined by their bodies is, not, is an evil plot put forward by white people. You saw, I don't know if you saw it online, some guy yelling at the Shapiro at one of his college appearances saying, you know, this is just, just white men think that there's such a thing as gender. Because, you know, you go to Africa where there are black people, there are no genders, obviously. It's a complete nonsense theory, but it's taken over the academy and therefore the left, just as Freudianism did in the 50s and 60s. So 
Libs of TikTok, they dox the lady who who runs Libs of TikTok, who likes to stay anonymous because she doesn't want to get death threats because that's what the left is into uh, because they're standing up against the power all the time. So they kill people or threaten people uh, who have no power. So now this poor woman is in hiding. They dox her. They take the doxing out. They put it in the memory hole. And then the editor of the Washington Post says, we never doxed her. Never happened. No, 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 no. Just na- now, I could say the Washington Post lies, but that's just like saying the Washington Post twice. Uh, so, so I understand why the right is hoping Elon Musk, Musk will take over Twitter, and I understand why when these people are um, a- attacking from these these media outlets that were formed by billionaires, that are run by billionaires for the sake of billionaires, for the globalized uh, you know, network of billionaires. I understand why everybody looks to Elon Musk and says, please take over Twitter and you know, please let people speak again. But that's not what I want to happen, have happen. I mean, I hope he does too. I hope it happens. That's fine. But that's not how I want this problem solved. We have a system here where we elect people who represent us. They represent the people. They serve the people. They forget it, but that's what they're there to do. They gave, that government gave Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Google, they gave them this power. They gave them the power to edit without being responsible for content, right? That's that section 230 that they talk about. Government gave it to him. So when David French or anybody else comes and says, government can't take away that power, it's just like with Disneyland. You know, government gave them that uh, place where they can run their own show. Government can take it away. Those are not rights given by God. This is These are not rights given by God. Twitter's uh, ability to censor people without being responsible for content is given by government, not by God. Only one of these things, it's an issue, is given by God, free speech. Our free speech, not just Disney's, not just Elon Musk's, not just Twitter's, ours, because we're the ones who count. We're the ones who matter. We're the ones who built the country and who the country is for. And the power to censor speech was given by the government. It can be taken away. But speech and free speech was given by God, and it belongs to each one of us. And this is why I'm so eager to see Roe v. Wade overturned so that people can start to build their own cultures in their own states. And I said this before, the Civil War, uh, slavery, soiled the idea of states' rights because slavery was evil. And when the people who defended states' rights were defending slavery, and that soiled the good idea of states' rights. Now, abortion, which is also an evil, abortion has soiled the idea of a powerful federal government. If we can take it back from there and reestablish cultural federalism, the real Benedictine option, then we can get back to solving our problems, not by giants fighting in the sky, but by giants fighting on the ground, namely us. All right, I've told you and told you about the Ring Doorbell. You love the Ring Doorbell because when people come to your door, you can see them and talk to them wherever you are, right on the app on your phone. I've told you that Ring has an alarm system that's easy to install, but now it's time to go pro with Ring Alarm Pro. Ring Alarm Pro is a next-level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security And you will believe it when you see it. Ring Alarm Pro can help protect your entire home and the Wi-Fi it runs on. With Ring Alarm Pro, Ring combined a home security system and a Wi-Fi router. This thing helps protect your home and your network. You can have a secure network with a crazy strong signal for all the devices across your home. With a Ring Protect Pro subscription, which is an amazing deal, by the way, you can get professional monitoring for the ultimate peace of mind. If anything happens, professional monitoring will call and can request emergency services 
services. You may not have known it, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm, and now they have gone pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash Clavin. That's ring.com forward slash Clavin. If anyone ever comes to your home, no matter who it is, even if it's your mother, say, how do you spell Clavin? And if they know, just say, Mom, I'm calling the cops. There are no So while we're drinking leftist tears, let's talk a minute about, uh, I want to talk about Netflix, and I also want to talk about this Johnny Depp trial. Netflix uh, is tanking. It's really having a bad time, which is not good for me. And my wife invested in Netflix. My wife does this thing. I've told you about it. You know, she's this the sweetest, absolute, most lovely person. Every now and again, she'll sort of drift through the kitchen and say something like, I think this Netflix streaming movies is a good idea. You know, and we, all our, our, our financial counselors will say, well, ma'am, you don't really know. About it. Let us take care of it. And she's always right, so I always don't listen to don't listen to them, just do it. So she's always investing in things. And Netflix is really having a problem that they thought after COVID, uh, they thought knew a lot of people came in and subscribed to Netflix during COVID, during the lockdowns. And they thought, yeah, that's going to back off. But they didn't think they were going to lose uh, subscription people. And they're losing them. And they're losing a lot of money. And other subscription streaming services are doing the same. Netflix Plus is gone. That's why you want to put... R.I.P. CNN. I'm sorry, CNN Plus is gone. R.I.P. CNN Plus, uh, the the symbol for plus when you subscribe and you get 20% off uh, to the Daily Wire. <laughs> but anyway, they're, Netflix is losing money and they're saying, well, it's because we have so much competition or people are sharing their subscriptions. It never occurs to them to think about the content. And here is the problem with the content. The problem with the content is kind of exemplified by this Amber Heard, uh, Johnny Depp, defamation trial. This is not a divorce. They're already divorced. But but basically, Amber Heard said that during the divorce and afterward that Johnny Depp was beating her up. And he said he never touched her. And he sued her for $50 million for defamation of character. And so they've been out there, these two movie stars exposing their dirty laundry. And it's, you know, it's gossip, but it's kind of riveting. I mean, the New York Post had a headline, what do you need to know about the Depp Heard trial? And I thought, I don't need to know anything about it. But <laughs> you know what? What do I need to know about it? But it is kind of interesting. They, they recorded their fights because they're movie stars and they're not alive unless people, they think people can see them. So they actually recorded their fights during which Amber Heard actually is threatened. <laughs> threatening, I shouldn't laugh, it's a terrible, sinful, terrible thing, but I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, Amber is actually threatening to beat up uh, Johnny Depp. Here's just a quick cut of a recorded fight that they're playing in court during this procedure. I didn't punch you, by the way. You, I'm sorry that I didn't uh, uh, hit you across the face in a proper slap, but I was hitting you. It was not punching you. You're fine. I did not hurt you. I did not punch you. I was hitting you. How are you? How, what am I supposed to do? Do this? I, I'm not sitting here about it, am I? You are. That's the difference between me and you. You're a baby. <laughs> I don't know. Is being beaten by Amber Heard, is that like a sex fantasy or something? I don't know. But it's, it's, it's very sad, of course. <clears throat> but it's also just amazing because these people have everything. They have money. They have fame. They have good looks. They have everything there is to have in life. And they're just miserable. Okay? And... This is why I wonder about the content, because when I turn on Netflix, they have good things on Netflix, you know, but it got after the BLM riots, it got very woke. And suddenly you turn on and every single show. Ha there was no such thing as two white people getting married. There was no such thing as a show about white people. There was no such thing as a show that didn't have the wonderful black person and uh, black writer involved and all this stuff. And of course, I don't begrudge. I, you know, there's a hell of a lot of talent in the black uh, Hollywood community. I know that. And I don't begrudge them working. 
working. It's not that. It's what I begrudge is these dysfunctional Hollywood people lecturing me about race because that's what it feels like. I, I've been watching movies all my life. I've been in love with stories all my life. I have never cared. I've never even thought twice about whether the character was black or white, unless, of course, it was part of the story. But whenever they say to me, oh, you know, now we've got Black Panther. We have a black superhero. I was watching black superheroes a long time ago. I can't remember. What was the name of that guy who was fighting the, the vampires uh, in, in the street? And, you know, you didn't even think about it. It was America. We were all here together. We're all mutts. We're all, you know, kind of uh, have our own journey to freedom. And I understand the black journey is an important part of American history, but we weren't being lectured at. It was just stuff that was happening. It was just good stories. And now suddenly you turn on Netflix and it's the Black Lives Matter collection. I think Black Lives Matter, there are a bunch of con men who started a riot over a, a punk who got killed by the police. I'm not going to watch the Black Lives Matter thing. And it's, who is it? It's Denzel Washington. Some of my favorite actors are on this thing. But the minute I see Black Lives Matter, I think, you know, to hell with you. And when, when you see Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, you are reminded of the fact that these people who lecture us, these people who yell at us, these people who tell us we're fools and deplorable because we voted for Donald Trump, these people who make triumphant speeches when they've got a little golden statuette from their fellow dysfunctional Hollywood people, these people who covered up for 150 years for Harvey Weinstein while he basically committed rape, you, you know, they have no business saying anything to us except reading scripts written for them by thoughtful people of all sides. And they don't do that. And the content coming out of Hollywood is garbage. And it has become worse garbage. And even worse than that, it has become pinched garbage that only contains this little woke perspective that is the perspective of people like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Maybe we want people to get out of our way. All these powerful people, all these power centers, maybe they could just back off and let the people who are the country run the country, namely us. All right, I know many of you are sitting in the car that's parked in your driveway because it doesn't run anymore, and you're wondering why you can't get a date. <laughs> and the reason is your car doesn't work, and you're not saying rockauto.com. When you say rockauto, well, you got to say it in that voice, but when you say rockauto.com, you will have a date because women will come out of the woodwork, and your car will be running because you will know that you can go right online and find the car parts that you need at rockauto.com. You can shop for auto and body parts for hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules, whatever those are, and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. The rockauto.com catalog is unique. It's remarkably easy to navigate. And when you look at it, you can say, I'm on rockauto.com and watch the women swoon. And best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low. And they're the same whether you're a professional or a do-it-yourselfer. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts when you can get them on rockauto.com and get a date as well. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin, Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N and you're in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know I sent you. They'll know just by the way you say their name. All right, once a month, we like to bring on Megan Basham to talk about the culture she is doing. She really is doing terrific work uh, at The Daily Wire, covering the culture. She's been doing it for like 15 years. She's written for The Wall Street Journal, National Review, Focus on the Family, The Washington Times. Uh, I am following her because I just get a lot out of what she's doing. And if you don't have, I think you need a reader's pass. Uh, I can never keep track of all the different levels we have here now, but the reader's pass, I think you need to read her stuff. It is well, well worth it. Megan, it's good to see you again. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. And congrats on the book launch. Thank you very much. I'm so shocked. It got on the USA Today list. It's the first time a book about Jesus and the English romantic poets has been on the USA Today list or any other <laughs> list anywhere. So. I love this topic. <laughs> uh, you have got a story today that is, well, first of all, it's so pertinent and relevant to what's going on about how these businesses have gone woke and, and why they've gone woke and the methods by which they've been turned woke, which is really interesting. I'm going to read just a, a, just a little bit of it uh, just to give people an idea. Uh, you write, perhaps no political shift in recent years has had as significant an impact on our culture as major corporations wading into political activism. Uh, PayPal, Nike, and General Electric opposed a North Carolina law that required use of government bathrooms to correspond with biological sex, and they won that fight. Buoyed by that success, companies like Coca-Cola and Delta waded into public debates. And, of course, we've seen Disney uh, fighting with DeSantis down in Florida uh, about this uh, law to maintain parental rights. How did we get here? I mean, we on the right used to love big business and we used to be kind of the party of big business. Uh, and now we're fighting them tooth and nail for our culture. How did this happen? You know, and that was kind of fascinating to me because I, I am not a finance girl. I am not a math girl. So this was all really new information to me. And I came into this story kind of through the side door because I cover a lot of Disney and I was interested in what was happening with Disney. And I started talking to the financial whizzes and they were telling me, you guys have this story all wrong. This is not about the activists within the company. This is about shareholders from without, and particularly some very big shareholders, the asset managers, BlackRock Street and Vanguard. And they said they sort of hold this vice grip on America's Fortune 500. And this was all, you know, it was kind of falling down a rabbit hole to discover all this information. And they said, you know, they own on average 20% of every Fortune 500 company in America. Holy and they are, yeah, and they're extremely woke. And they are using their leverage. And we'll get to that in a minute because it's not actually their leverage. It's your leverage that they're using. But they, they, they manage these pension funds. They manage IRAs. They manage 401ks. And what they do is they come into these companies and they use their power to say, we want you to enact certain what they call ESG, environmental, social, and governance policies that are woke. And if you don't do this, then we will do things like uh, replace board members or we won't take your company public. That's Goldman Sachs, who is also very woke. So they enact these policies and they're doing it using the leverage of your money. So that was really just kind of the insane story to me that I went, how did I not know this? So, uh, yeah, that is, it is kind of amazing. Just, just so we're clear about this, because I'm not a business guy either, I, I have a pension fund. If my pension fund is managed by one of these three companies, that is essentially, those are essentially shares in their control. I mean, those are shares where they can say, if you want us to invest our are these pension funds in your company, you have to do what we say? Is that is that basically it? Well, that, and even more than that, what they do is they go ahead and invest, and then they say, now as your largest shareholder, mm. this is what we want you to do. I see. And I see. Okay. Yes. And so they argue it's something called stakeholder versus shareholder capitalism. So in the past, the shareholders are the boss, right? You have to have a good return on investment. Well, now they approach it through something they called stakeholder capitalism, which means um, we're not just beholden to uh, the people who hold shares in our company. We're beholden to anybody who might claim to have some uh, social impact from our business. And that could be anybody. You could say, well, okay, so Black Lives Matter. We're very concerned about what's happening in the community where we have a company. 
Therefore, Black Lives Matter is a stakeholder in our company. So we need to do things to respond to their concerns. Did these guys? Uh, it's a racket. <laughs> I, it is a racket. I mean, but I, you know, I used to know guys from Golden, Goldman Sachs, mm. and they were uh, pure money guys. They couldn't have cared less. Is, is this is this a takeover of these asset managers? I mean, or did they just? It just kind of occurred to them that this is something they wanted to do at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think in a certain sense that it is an ideological takeover. And yeah. part of what was interesting to me, because I went, well, don't you guys just want to make money? And they said, no, you know, at a certain point, you also want the social cachet of saying, you know, that we are environmental activists. And there's the group think it doesn't matter how much money you have or how successful you are. The group think gets to almost everyone, right? Except maybe like a guy like Elon Musk, who has now been on the cusp of saying, I am very anti this ESG approach. In fact, he's out sort of sounding the alarm saying this is the devil incarnate, this movement. Yeah, yeah. So now so now you have, uh, for instance, Disney, their stock is, is plummeting um, because, I assume, because of this fight they're having with DeSantis. I mean, they they looked awfully bad after those Chris Rufo tapes. I I was appalled. I mean, I had whatever, whatever affection or loyalty or uh, nostalgia I had for Disney was absolutely right. destroyed uh, watching these kind of people plot against the, the minds of children. Don't, does, do the people who are investing, like the ordinary people whose money is going into these pensions, if they start to see the stock fall, aren't they going to come back to the... Uh, asset managers and say, you've invested my money in something that's collapsing? Well, that was kind of the interesting question that I put to some of these financial guys. And they said, the problem is we haven't been doing that. The right has been entirely absent uh -huh. on okay. this front and the left has made huge gains. And so suddenly just now we're starting to wake up to that. So you're starting to see now, um, you might say conservative investment groups starting to advise people that look, you, even if you own shares, you can show up and start speaking at these shareholders meetings. And I had a finance advisor who's also a former columnist at Forbes who told me, look, if, if just 10, 15 people had showed up at that original Disney shareholder meeting mm. where Bob Chapek shifted gears, it might have changed the outcome of this story. It might have changed what they did. And, you know, what was really interesting is one of the things he pointed out to me was that when Target went through this bathroom stuff in 2016, he said, you know, a friend of mine is friends with that guy, the CEO of Target, and he's actually an evangelical Christian. Mm. And, you know, this is a bit of hearsay, but he said, my friend told me that he said, no one was there to back me up. Nobody came to the shareholder meetings. Nobody provided me any cover. And he didn't really want to do the woke will of you know these activist company of these activist outside shareholders. He didn't want to bow to the pressure, but he said he had no cover. And you kind of I, I will say I have heard that internally at Disney as well. They have said we had no cover. All of the pressure was coming from one side. So that was kind of interesting to me that these guys said, look, if the right started showing up at shareholders meetings, if they started voting what's called their proxies which is you know, what the BlackRock's, what they use as your investment manager to show up and vote for you know, various proposals at these shareholder meetings. They said, you need to show up. You need to start demanding things. You guys need to start. It would be so much more effective than this boycott that we tend to go to. That's they're, really- They're way beyond boycotts. Yeah, way beyond. Yeah. Yeah, that, is, that is really interesting. So the, uh, the, the story that- uh, Bob Chapek, is that his name? Bob Chapek? Bob Chapek. Yeah, mm -hmm. the head of Disney, who has also got rumored to be kind of conservative and certainly yeah. and certainly said openly that he wanted to take the company out of politics, that he didn't want to be a divisive force. So the story that he sits down and, you know, 
a couple of uh, angry LGBTQ people in the company bully him and he collapses, that's a false story. That is not the truth. That's not what happened. Well, it is certainly part of it. And I don't want to discount that influence. But okay. the other part of it is those employees start making noise to the press and these large shareholder groups start going, well, we don't want this negative press. And if you remember, it, or maybe you don't, if your audience doesn't remember, during that shareholders meeting, that was when Bob Chapek did gears. They went to a shareholders meeting where there were noisy leftists saying, we're very concerned about you angering your activist employees and creating this bad press by not opposing the Florida bill. So for a while there, all the noise shareholder wise was only coming from the left. Now, I'd be curious to know if they could go back. They might not do things differently <laughs> because I don't think they anticipated this level. I think I don't think they ever saw the number of people going, that's enough, Disney. This yeah. is enough of enough of these corporates, uh, sponsorships coming in and saying, here's how we're going to transform America. I, I think it's kind of come as a shock to people. Would, well, because they're so wrapped up by the press, the press surrounds them, mm -hmm. they cannot see outside that. Would it, would it help if people uh, who have their pension fund at BlackRock or they have, you know, whatever investment they have at BlackRock, would it help if they went to BlackRock themselves and said, hey, we don't want you doing this. You know, this is my money. You're using my money, my investment. Or is each person too small to do that himself and would need some kind of coalition? Well, the coalition, I think, is important. But I loved what one of the uh, finance guys I talked to, because then he started to speak my language of literature. And he said, I am tired of the Denethor thinking on the right. And <laughs> Remind people who Denethor is. So Denethor in Lord of the Rings is the cowardly steward of Gondor who, who assumes that the cause is lost and decides to commit suicide rather than fight. And so this finance advisor, Jerry Boyer, said to me, I am tired of this Denethor thinking on the right. And it's very much, he said, like the Old Testament Israelites who say, you know, we, we're grasshoppers in our own sight compared to the, Phil I might have been the Philistines, but so, I, and that's, he said, we don't fight. So we just assume that we're going to lose and we, we don't make those calls and we don't offer that pushback. And so, you know, he was very much like, yes, it is important to do that. It's important to get organized. But he also said... What's been interesting is that the red states are starting to wake up to this danger. So you're starting to see people like Ron DeSantis. I think West Virginia has also done this. They are demanding answers of BlackRock, and they are saying, we are going to pull our state pension funds uh, out of your company if you don't stop using that money to do this woke corporatism. So uh, speaking of that, uh, speaking of the red states uh, striking back, you have Ron DeSantis and basically the Florida legislature saying they're going to strip Disney of its special, I don't even know what to call it. It's this kind of Vatican-like state that Disney right. has in the middle of Florida <laughs> where they, you know, they have their own government essentially and they're, it's going to cost them a fortune if it's taken away from them. And people on the right, and I respect this, I respect their concern, certainly, uh, people on the right are, are saying, well, you know, that's going too far because now what you're doing is you're punishing uh, Disney for constitutionally protected speech. Disney has the right to oppose this law if they don't like it. How do you feel about that? Having watched this unfold, do you feel De DeSantis has gone too far? Or you feel he's fighting, you know, he's just fighting the way the fight has to be fought? Well, for me, I feel that they're correcting something that never should have happened in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. like these special carve-outs. I don't like a Disney Vatican City. I don't think that should have been a thing where they say, you know, you don't tax us. We will do the taxing. We will run the emergency services. We will decide what we build there. I don't understand why they don't have to answer 
to the local governing authorities like everyone else. That just seems like a bad deal. So in a way, I go, this is a correction of what never should have been. Um, and, you know, I also think that there's something a little bit naive about arguing, hey, this is just Disney's free speech. Because there's also, as I said, coercion from very large actors. Actors that, you know, when you really get deep in the weeds, are connected to China that have some really big investments in China who are moving these pieces on the board. And so, um, you know, I, I'm kind of, I, I heard Ben Shapiro say, and I kind of stand with him that, look, if you are going to become nakedly partisan and a boldly political actor, well, now you're on the political field and there's going to be some consequences to that. So I'm kind of in the camp of that is fair game. Yep, yep. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree with that myself. Uh, I'm running out of time, but I would like to know what you think what direction do you think this is going? Is this too complicated for the ordinary person uh, to fight back? Is this, is this the kind of thing that we're just going to have to sort of read in the papers what happens? Or, or do you really think that activism will turn the tide? No, I don't think it. And I'll tell you why. Because I am that like average mom, suburban mom at home who doesn't know anything about this sort of I mean, when I started reading about it, my head hurt a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, explain these terms to me. And once they did, I started to see that there's been a tipping point in coverage. So I'm seeing a tipping point in press coverage, but I'm also seeing a tipping point in some of these Republican leaders like DeSantis uh, and a few others who are starting to talk about it. And um, as I'm talking to people, you're just hearing suddenly, and it's weird how these things sort of reach a viral moment. So I'm suddenly hearing everyone talking about ESG stakeholder capitalism. Guys like Elon Musk are, hap are helping that. So, um, you know, I, I don't I don't think that this is too too big for us. I think, um, look, the left can do it. We're smart as they are. Why can't we do it? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great point. Megan Basham, you really are doing a terrific job. I'm not flattering you. You're doing excellent you. work. And I, I hope I hope people are taking a look and getting the reader's pass and looking at it. Uh, this article on ESG, how three investment firms are turning companies like Disney woke and what you can do to fight back. Megan, we will see you again next month. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Always good to see you. Thanks. Well, as you all know, Matt Walsh is now a very important voice in the transgender conversation, mostly because he is now the author of the best-selling children's LGBTQ plus book, Johnny the Walrus. This is why he was invited to Dr. Phil to discuss these most important issues with experts who could not even tell him what a woman was. If you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend you check it out. And even more importantly, if you haven't picked up a copy of his best-selling children's book, you should do it immediately. It sold out in 48 hours when it was released. Least, but don't worry, more copies are on the way. Reserve Johnny the Walrus now on Amazon. So when we speak about Twitter, we really have to speak about Hunter Biden and his laptop, one of the biggest acts of suppression by the media working together that I've ever seen in my entire life, the suppressing the information from Hunter Biden's laptop so that it would not hurt uh, Joe Biden during the election. The person who has written the book about this, literally the book about this, is Miranda Devine. She works for the uh, paper of record, the New York Post. Uh, she's a columnist for the New York Post. She's also a Fox News contributor. And she has written a book with the wonderful title, Laptop from Hell, Laptop from Hell by Miranda Devine, which explains it all. And we have asked her to come on and tell us all about it. Miranda, are you there? Yes. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. That's a, it's a real pleasure. It is nice to know that somewhere there's an actual a journalist uh, actually writing about a news story that is this important. Uh, let, you know, I would like to start with this. I, I would like to get 
we know that Hunter Biden has spent a lot of his time uh, influence peddling, basically selling the influence of his um, of his famous and powerful father. But could you give us a kind of overview of what that looks like? What exactly was on, what exactly is on this laptop, and what does it talk about? Well, I guess moving from um, the last and biggest. Uh, deal with the Chinese uh, backwards. Um, that last deal uh, was with an energy company in China called CEFC, and this was going to be the biggest, you know, multi-million dollar uh, payday for Hunter Biden and his uncle Jim Biden, who was Joe Biden's younger brother. Um, and CFC was not just an energy company. It was the um, capitalist arm of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is President Xi's um, strategy to overtake the uh, United States as the world's economic superpower. And he does that by going into developing countries, poorer countries, and uh, basically ensnaring them in debt traps, buying up their infrastructure, buying up all their mineral wealth. And uh, to do that, for the last two years of Joe Biden's vice presidency, uh, Hunter and Jim Biden and their uh, partners, American partners, um, were doing work for the Belt and Road Initiative, for CEFC, all around the world, in the Middle East, in Asia. And they were using Joe Biden's name, the vice president's name, his power, his prestige, um, to open doors because a lot of these countries would be wary about uh, letting, you know, a Chinese company or basically it's the Chinese state come in and buy up uh, their ports and their infrastructure. But um, they were more comfortable in doing that if it had the imprimatur as a joint venture partner of the Biden family. And so that was what the tens of millions of dollars that came into bank accounts and was promised to uh, the Biden family from CEFC. So Hunter Biden is is working for a company that essentially is a representation a representative of the Chinese Communist Party, which is the yep. state, it, as part of their attempt to take over, take uh, economic primacy away from America. And they're going into other countries and convincing people to let the Chinese buy up their properties. Is that, is that and that's correct? And and the biggest deal that was just about to happen uh, before one of Hunter Biden's uh, business partners from CFC was arrested in New York at JFK Airport was that CFC was brokering the biggest deal China had done in a biggest energy deal, and that was uh, to buy up a big chunk of Rosneft, which was the uh, sanctioned, uh, you had a bunch of US sanctions on it, that Rosneft was the Russian state-owned energy company. And Vladimir Putin and President Xi were uh, doing this deal together. This was at the highest level, and CFC uh, was in the middle of it. Uh, brokering it, and Hunter Biden and Jim and his bumbling, you know, Hunter Biden is a crackhead, and his bumbling uncle are right in the centre of this and just rubbing their hands with glee about the money that they're going to glean from it. And uh, the whole thing was foiled uh, because by that stage, Donald Trump was president and um, they were sort of wrapping up Chinese influence operations in America and they, they nabbed Patrick Ho and after that, the whole CEFC enterprise fell apart. Um, the chairman, Chairman Yi, who was Hunter Biden's partner, was arrested in Shanghai, then disappeared, believed dead. Uh, and uh, the Rosneft sale never went through. And China had to pay Russia $200 million in compensation. But this is the level at which Hunter Biden 
and Jim Biden were operating right at the very highest echelons of the Chinese and the Russian governments. And so in this in this laptop, and this is Hunter's laptop left in a repair shop, right, that they mm-hmm. somebody got their hands on. In, in this laptop, is there any evidence that that Joe Biden knew about or profited from this deal? Tons of evidence. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't believe I'm listening to this. It's like a it's like a Batman uh, story. All right. uh, yeah. It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, honestly, writing this book, I just felt sometimes, especially all the characters are larger than life. Yeah, peculiar. Everybody is sort of quirky in this, and you think, you know, this is some sort of I don't know Truman Show that we're living through, but it's it's real. Um, and basically, Joe Biden. I mean, firstly, the most obvious involvement of his is um, his multiple meetings with Hunter Biden's overseas business partners. Uh, That was something that he told the American people he knew nothing about. Mm. During the campaign, he was repeatedly asked uh, about his knowledge of Hunter Biden's overseas business deals. He said, I know nothing. Uh, And that's just proven false by lots of material on the laptop, but also by uh, from the testimony of um, Hunter's one of Hunter's business partners, Tony Boblinski. Uh, also, the contents of his devices that he handed over to the FBI that I also have that really overlap with a lot of the material on the laptop. Um, and, you know, Tony Boblinski gave a press conference in October 2020, just after our story came out to basically corroborate uh, the material that we had published. Um, he was ignored. Um, and, uh, and and there was a lot of material also from uh, senators, the Republican senators, Chuck Grasley and Ron Johnson, uh, basically a lot of the money trail, uh, which came out September 2020, also ignored. So, you know, when you have the likes of the New York Times and the Washington Post saying, oh, well, we couldn't really report on this story because we didn't have the laptop. I mean, there was plenty of other evidence. Laptops, just one element to, to put together it to about which is, you know, it's the jigsaw puzzle, basically, which goes to show piles and piles of at least circumstantial evidence pointing to deep corruption over many years of Joe Biden and his family uh, when it comes to really uh, America's biggest adversaries and around the world, uh, Russia and China in particular. So we know we know then that Joe Biden met with uh, Hunter Biden and his business partners um, yes. We know from Bobolinsky, I guess, that he, they discussed business. They were talking about this this business. Yeah. Do we have any evidence that uh, he was taking a payoff? There's not a lot, but um, there's certainly a lot of indications on the laptop. Um, for instance, there um, there there are emails uh, and text messages showing that there's commingling of Joe and Hunter Biden's money. Mm. Um, they had shared bank accounts. Um, the, you know, Hunter's uh, the sort of president, his factotum basically at his company, Rosemont Seneca, a guy called Eric Schwerin, um, was very uh, detailed in some of his emails. And he talks about, uh, you know, cashing um, or, or depositing uh, Joe Biden's tax refund check when he was vice president into an account and then writing a check out of it for Hunter. Um, so he, so Eric Schwerin, um, the president of Rosemont Seneca, Hunter's private uh, business, um, was, uh, was, had signature privileges uh, over one of Joe Biden's accounts. Um, and then there's indications of other um, shared activity, shared debit cards, 
Um, and then Hunter was paying bills for his father. So there's an AT&T phone bill every month, um, you know, $180, $200 a month that Hunter was paying. Uh, there was also bills that were coming in for renovation and repairs um, on Joe Biden's, one of his Delaware houses. Um, you know, a few thousand here, a few thousand there, things like fixing a retaining wall or doing painting or fixing shutters or replacing air conditioning, those sorts of things that uh, bills were owed. The only reason we saw that is because these bills were so overdue that the local Wilmington, Delaware uh, tradesmen were complaining because, you know, I mean, it might be only $5,000 to Joe Biden, but it's a lot of money to a small businessman. So right. um, so that's why we see it. So it's, it's, you know, probably the tip of the iceberg, but I would imagine that um, the grand jury in Delaware that's investigating Hunter Biden, uh, would it, we already know it's been pulling on the threads that lead to Joe Biden because uh, it, witnesses have been asked uh, the question, who is the big guy? And the big guy is Joe Biden. And we know that from various documents on the laptop, but also because Tony Bobolinsky says that that was the name that or one of the names that Hunter and the other partners used uh, to refer to Joe Biden uh, when he was vice president, because they were trying to keep Joe Biden's involvement quiet. Uh, you know, there's a lot of indication of that in the the encrypted WhatsApp messages on Tony Bobolinsky's phones um, and BlackBerry. Basically, you know, don't don't mention Joe's name. Uh, you know, they're paranoid about it. Um, obviously, and then then Jim Biden, Joe's brother, said to Tony Bobolinsky at one point. Um, when Tony said, aren't you worried about Joe Biden getting caught up in all of this? You know, politically, it will be damaging. And Jim Biden just says to him, plausible deniability. So they <laughs> always managed. Yeah. Yeah. So so he says, as I recall, there's an email where he says it's 10 percent for the big guy. Is that what he says? That's correct. Is he talking yeah. about any specific payment when he says that? Yes, so this was 10% um, equity in this joint venture with CFC, that company I mentioned before, the energy company, which is really Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you know, it, that's 10% of that joint venture, which would have been worth, um, I don't know, a lot of money. I mean, they were thinking that they were got this this whole deal would have been worth, say, $100 million, but, um, you know, the sky was the limit. But um, it fell apart, as I said. Did, did um, it fall but, apart but, so but, they never made any money off it? No, they made a lot of money off it yeah. because of the of the two years' worth of work right. that they did in 2015 and 2016. And now, Hunter told the Chinese that they owed him $20 million or his family, um, $20 million. And he had a screaming match with um, the two ICFCFC in uh, New York. Um, and, uh, and so eventually some of that money did come through. There was $10 million that came through to Hunter, uh, which he shared with Jim Biden. And then there was another $6 million, which came through to one of Hunter's business partners, Rob Walker, mm. um, and so, so, and we see some of that money. I think I traced about half a million dollars that went from Rob Walker's bank account to Hunter Biden. Um, but again, look, the Delaware grand jury is has subpoenaed all these bank records of Hunter Biden's. Uh, you, you, they will have much more visibility than we have. What we have is little data points, uh, you know, building up to a data pattern that looks very suspicious. Um, a lot of 
uh, instances where Joe Biden has denied something that you know is is just so obviously not true. Um, so all put together, it's a real pattern of corruption and subterfuge. Um, but but you know, the the Delaware grand jury has much more power than we have to go in and see these bank accounts, see where the money's gone, and that's where Chuck uh, Grasley and Ron Johnson were so useful because. Their inquiry found these Treasury Department documents, which um, contained 150 different suspicious activity reports that banks are required to file with the Treasury Department when suspect money comes into American bank accounts in great quantities. And a lot of these transactions from China, from Ukraine, from Russia were flagged to the Treasury Department. So they have those and they're very useful, especially you can cross-reference with um you know, invoices and other documents that are on the and bank statements that right. are on the laptops. So, so I just want to recap because corruption stories are always very hard to follow. Yes. The, the, the Chinese Communist Party, through this uh, energy company, is trying to take over economic supremacy from the left. They hire Hunter Biden and his partner and, and uh the other Biden, Jim, Jim Biden, yep. uh, to spread, to use their influence that they get through being related to the vice president uh, to move into the other countries. They're paying millions of dollars. Ten percent of that is uh, allegedly going to the big guy. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that, that's where we are now. The, one of the most fascinating things about this is the story of the story. You're you're at the post. Were you at the post when they got the laptop? Oh, of course, yes. You, you were. Can, yes. can you tell me, I, I know you, I don't want you to give away any sources, of course, but can you tell me how that happened or, or some idea? Oh, about yeah. I mean, we're completely upfront about yeah. it. We, um, you know, we said exactly where we got the laptop from and the whole chain of custody. So um, basically, Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, Bob Costello, phoned me or actually texted me one night um, with four um four or five photographs that were from the laptop. And one of them was that famous one of Hunter Biden um, asleep with the crack pipe in his mouth or the meth pipe in his mouth. Um, And so, and said, are you interested? Yes, of course, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and at the same time, or about a week earlier, or 10 days earlier, Emma Jo Morris, my colleague, had been told by one of Steve Bannon's people that there was this laptop. Now, Steve Bannon didn't have the laptop, but Rudy and Bob Costello had called him in to look at some of the Chinese, um, you know, characters they didn't right. understand. So, um, so, so Emma Jo uh, went out to Bob Costello's house and he allowed her to look at some of the most salient um, emails and um, she started doing uh, her own work on it. But it's, it's so she did a lot of due diligence before I got this call from Bob Costello. But um, but but unfortunately, because this is, you know, three weeks before the election, uh, our lawyers were a bit spooked about it all. We didn't at that point have the laptop. So it sort of had sat with the lawyers for a while and, you know, everyone was sort of a bit discombobulated, didn't really know if this was legit. And so, um, but once we got the laptop, which we got on the Sunday uh, or the Saturday after the phone call from um, I think it was a Sunday after the phone call from uh, Bob Costello, things started to move. We we sent a reporter, we sent reporters everywhere, but we sent one reporter down to Delaware to interview John Paul Mac Isaac, who was the owner of the uh, lap, 
laptop repair shop place. Miranda, I'm running out of time. I'm sorry to rush yeah. you, but but I, yeah. I I have to. Have, I'm listening to this, and I I was a reporter myself. You obviously were doing great reporting. Were you shocked when you received when the entire uh, media empire of lies media uh, basically cut you down and started calling it Russian disinformation, going after Grassley and Johnson? Were you surprised by that? weren't really surprised by the Democrat-leaning media because uh, they were all in the tank for Joe Biden. That was pretty obvious. Yeah. What we were shocked about was big tech, uh, yeah. Twitter and Facebook locking us down, censoring us. And then it was just this rolling parade of censorship and lies. And we had the 51 former intelligence officials, yes. including John Brennan, CIA, uh, coming out and claiming in a letter this was Russian disinformation. So dishonest. These people have you know, access to classified uh, information. And they never cleared that letter as they should have with their agencies. I mean, it was just so nefarious. And then, of course, Joe Biden used that letter in the debate against Donald Trump, that final debate, to just put the kibosh on the whole story and make out that it was Russian disinformation. And that was the all that the fig leaf that was needed by the rest of the media to bury the story and pretend that it was it was unimportant. It's unbelievable. Do you, do you think now now that uh, Biden might be indicted? Hunter Biden? Yes. Yes. Um, look, look. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, if, if you had to ask me to guess, I would say yes. Um, I think that will happen and I, because you just look at the trajectory and a few of the leaks that we've been getting out of the grand jury. They're certainly um, pulling on threads. They've, they've interviewed a whole bunch of his former business partners um, and girlfriends um, they're looking at a, a lot of, you know, tax, tax violations, uh, you know, alleged money laundering, alleged FARA violations. There's a lot of evidence for that um, on the laptop, but also in the Bobolinsky material. And also um, they're, they're looking into Blue Star Strategies, which is a Democratic lobbying shop, uh, which was also uh, involved in the with Hunter in the whole Burisma Ukraine scam. So um, I think I think we will see some pretty significant um, indictments come out of that grand jury. They've been working since 2018. Um, but whether or not Hunter manages and his lawyers manage to sort of downplay the Farrah violations, uh, turn them into civil violations, he gets away with the tax uh, problem by he's already paid back $1 million in tax um, that he borrowed from a kind benefactor in California. Um, so he always seems to get away with yeah. things. And, and also his father has pardon power. So unlike everyone else, all his other business partners and associates have met sticky ends. They're in jail. They're dead. They're financially ruined. Their reputations are yeah. gone. Hunter is fine. Yeah, it's great. The book is called Laptop from Hell. You want to read this book because you want to be out ahead of the story because it's going to get more and more interesting as it goes along. The author is Miranda Devine. Miranda, thank you so much for coming on. That's great reporting. It really is a great job. And uh, Laptop from Hell, get the book. Thanks a lot. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Andrew. All right. The Clavenless week is fast approaching. I was going to make a joke. I was going to say last week it was Easter, uh, so the Clavenless week wasn't so bad, but Jesus can't save you now. But that's a blasphemous joke, so I'm not going to make it. Um, and don't laugh just because I happened to slip it in there. Um, but before the Clavenless week, I don't know, have I lost my mind? It's possible. Before the Clavenless week begins, we will solve all your problems with the mailbag. It's horrifying. I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're fine. You're it's so overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> ah, those leftist tears. That's what it is. It's leftist tears. It's like an elixir. It's like being on, you know, uh, what do they have in, in, on Mount Olympus? Uh, ah, God. They have leftist tears. That is what they have on le- le- uh, Mount Olympus. All right, from David. Hello, great bald-headed genius behind the curtain. First, I want to thank you for all the wisdom you shared in the two-plus years that I've listened to your show. You've introduced me to new ideas and ways of thinking about old problems that have improved my life immeasurably, and I'm looking forward to reading the truth and beauty. I'm 37 years old. I've been badly mistreated by the women I've had relationships with. Uh, In my experience, Christian women... In my experience, Christian women are mean, demanding, manipulative, and neurotic. By God's grace, I've held on to my purity despite randomly yelling rock auto in coffee shops. I still desire to be married, but as I'm in my late 30s, I find myself struggling. Uh, My question is this, how do I hold on to hope for the future while also understanding that God's plan for me might not include a wife and a family and a home? Uh, Thank you for all you do. Please know that I pray for you and your family every week. Sincerely, came for Clavin, stayed for Clavin. Yeah, well, thank you for your prayers. I always appreciate people's prayers. I know that they help, and that's great. Uh, you know, I have a problem with this. Uh, when, when, and people have said this to me a lot about not just not Christian women, but all kinds of different women, sometimes women in general. When I hear somebody say Christian women are mean, demanding, manipulative, and neurotic, I know that's just not true, okay? It's obviously true of some Christian women and some Christian men and some non-Christian women and some non-Christian men. When, when you go out with a woman who is uh, mean and manipulative and neurotic, that's on her. When you go out with two or three women like that, that starts to be on you. You know, that starts to be something that you're attracting or looking for or missing. I, we all do this in life, right? We all repeat the traumas in life by forming relationships that actually act out those traumas. I used to do it uh, back in, in the old days. I would have uh, similar friendships with people who would disappoint me because they reproduced uh, um, relationships from my youth, you know? And I suddenly realized it. I realized it, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to recognize this kind of character when he comes into my life, and I'm not going to form a friendship with him. And that worked. And it really set me free from this repetitive uh, reenactment of a trauma. Now, some, somebody in your life, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe your mom, maybe something else, uh, you know, was, was this kind of person, and now you're attracted to that kind of person. It is not true that Christian women or any you know, group of women, except that group of women that is mean, demanding, manipulative, and neurotic, uh, is mean, demanding, manipulative, and neurotic. So I don't know if this is God's plan for you to be single. I think it is God's plan for you to maybe take a look at your life, maybe with a therapist, and find out what it is that keeps you going back to that particular trough, okay? Because, uh, you know, myself... Obviously, I lived my life in a different way, and things only worked out by the grace of God. Uh, but I would say to any young man today, do not marry a woman who doesn't pray. That's, that's what I would tell you. Do not marry a woman who doesn't go to church. And I would say for you, you know, find out what it is in yourself that keeps you attracted to women like that. Because if it's happened more than once, certainly if it happens more than twice, that's you. That's you going back and looking for that kind of woman. Um, and hopefully that's helpful. I, uh, let me know. From James, as I listened to your latest episode this week uh, between university classes, I wondered about your rough upbringing and how that shaped the man you are today. Do you think if you hadn't had that troubled relationship with your father, uh, you would have become the same man? Would you be at the Daily Wire sharing wisdom to millions if you hadn't gone through all that pain, hardship, and growth until you stumbled uh, that glorious bald head into God? Uh, plug for your memoir, The Great Good Thing, you you discuss this hard upbringing in detail, and I can't help but wonder if it wasn't all for a greater purpose. Um, love the shows, and God bless you, my friend. Uh, you know, yeah, 
Uh, how can I put this? First of all, you know the old expression, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. Uh, everyone wants to grow wise, but no one wants to suffer. Uh, and, and that is, you know, one of the ways that you grow wise is by seeing things that, that hurt and understanding that other people are hurt and understanding that when you say, how could some person do that? You could do it too, and you can be hurt too, and you can have uh, scars and, and things that cause you to do uh, bad things. But when I look back on my life, what I, what I feel truly is that uh, God allowed people to act freely in my life, sometimes to my de uh, detriment, but he also sent people into my life to help me at important uh, moments. And I know that he sent them because he left his footprints to let me know that he sent them. Uh, and that has been a major thing. But he took almost every bad thing that happened to me and turned it for my good when I allowed him to do that, when I allowed God to do that. And sometimes I did it without knowing God, you know, because I would, but I would follow some inner voice, a st still small voice in me, and that <laughs> turned out to be God, but I didn't know it. And that didn't work out as well as when I did know it, but still it, it helped me to find those things. So for instance, I did have a, a difficult, listen, I had a lot of benefits. I grew up with enough money. Uh, I grew up in a pleasant neighborhood. I grew up with my parents who loved one another, and that really affected my marriage. I had a lot of blessings and a lot of um, good things in my life, but my father and I didn't get along, and he uh, he didn't like me in a lot of ways. I mean, I suspect he, he loved me, but he didn't really like me uh, all that much. And because of that, he was mean to me. And because he was mean to me, I realized uh, early on that he was not my friend. I mean, I remember saying to myself, this man is not on your side. And, and because I did that, I was freed from his worldview, which was a worldview that crippled him and crippled anybody who took it on. And because I, he had mistreated me, and because I don't like to be mistreated, and I do reject people who mistreat me, um, you know, and that's just instinctive, I didn't get his damaging worldview. And that was kind of God kind of working in me as long as I listened, didn't just listen to my father's voice, as long as I listened to this other voice that turned out to be God's voice, I was led away from even in the bad things that happen, and I still have scars from that. I still have emotional things that are, you know, damaged because you don't, you can't grow up with in that kind of pain without being damaged. But still, those, those, even the damage, even the limps uh, and the, you know, the, uh, the, the, things that hurt me uh, actually led me to beautiful things. And so that that is the way life works, unfortunately. Uh, I wish it only worked by uh, positive incentives, but it actually is, we, because we're free, we hurt each other. Uh, and in hurting each other, especially when we're young, we scar each other. And yet God can take even those scars and turn them to your good. And he has done that again and again in my life. So I'm grateful to him. And I, I understand, um, you know, that that, that that freedom has to exist and we all have to be tough enough to get through it and to listen to that other voice, not the voices. There's a wonderful uh, Casting Crown song about this, uh, The Voice of Truth, uh, I think it's called, which you should listen to, but it reminds you that you shouldn't be listening to the voices that tell you you're bad or you can't do it. You should be listening to the voice that loves you, which is the voice of God who created you. Uh, from Mariah, I enjoyed listening to your most recent Easter episode. I'm enjoying reading the truth and beauty. I'm from an evangelical background, so it's nice to hear a different perspective. Uh, last week's uh, podcast, you talked about what you think the Jews' role in his chosen people. Specifically, you mentioned that you do not think that God's covenant with them is nullified and that they are cast off. And uh, um, Mariah says, I agree that the Jews had and continue to have a special place in the kingdom, uh, but do they need to be found? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the light, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So do the Jews need Jesus? Listen, yes, the Jews need Jesus. I think it is better to know the face of God. I think Jesus is the face of your God, whether you're a Jew or not. And I think uh, it, it is. I think it's better for Jews. However, 
I do not think that um, you need to know the name of Jesus to be saved. I, what uh, C.S. Lewis says, I wrote it down. He says, we do know that no person can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved by him. Christ can save whom he pleases, right? And this is the thing, because I know a lot of people who serve Christ without knowing his name. And I know a lot of people who say, Lord, Lord, but do not do what Jesus tells them to do. Uh, I think we all know that, right? And I think that, uh, you know, God is not a, a game show. He is not waiting for you to guess his name. Uh, it's not like Rumpelstiltskin or anything like that. He is hoping that you will become like him and follow him. And I know people who follow him without even knowing who they're following. And so, I, you know, I have great hope and I never think, um, you and I, this is the key thing, we don't get a vote. We don't get even a single vote. We don't get half a vote. We don't get to put in a, you know, a, a ballot with a phony name on it, nothing. We get no choice about this. And my belief, uh, first of all, my absolute knowledge is that uh, God will judge us perfectly with perfect mercy and perfect justice. And I think that that is gonna be surprising when we get to the halls of heaven, we're gonna see some people we didn't expect to see there. Uh, we're gonna see some people who aren't there maybe, who we did expect to see. Uh, and so we shouldn't judge each other on those terms at all because we don't know anything about it and we have no say in the matter. And the best thing we can do is love one another, uh, Jewish or not, Muslim or not, uh, atheist or not, uh, love one another as if we were looking into the image of God because we are. And with that, I'm going to plunge you mercilessly into the darkness of the Clavenless week, wailing, gnashing of teeth, fire, broken glass, the whole business. You will not make it to Friday, but if you do, we'll be here with The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Lisa Bacon, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. CNN Plus shuts down after just 21 days. That's less than two Scaramucci's. I get protested at Boston University. Me, little old me, whom everybody loves. And Elon Musk proves that he is in it to win it on this Twitter fight. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.